Hi there, this is Dr. Tommy McElroy. You didn't go to medical school so you could fill out paperwork. You got into medicine because you wanted to help people. You want to make a difference. You want to heal and connect with your patients. Atlas MD is the EMR that will help you get to where you always wanted to go. Learn how to transition your practice to direct care and learn more about Atlas MD EMR at atlas.md. That's A-T-L-A-S dot M-D. And thank you for joining us. This is the Dr. Tommy Show Live. Joining you live, special presentation of the Dr. Tommy Show. Usually we run on 11.30 on Wednesdays or thereabouts if our patients allow. But patients come first. But today we have a very special guest and his name is Dr. Michael Hoffman. He's a neurologist and is a specialist in the cognitive and psychological aspects of neurology as well as stroke neurology. It's my pleasure to have you, Dr. Hoffman. Good afternoon, Tommy. Thanks for having me on the show. You're welcome, sir. Dr. Hoffman is a neurologist, like I said. And when I were talking before the show, when I was first at University of South Florida, Dr. Hoffman was or attending on the stroke neurological um, stroke ICU, I think it was called. And I had such a great experience then. I considered doing stroke, actually, just specifically stroke neurology. So I, I... uh, credit you and Dr. Malik for that uh, piquing my interest and it was a wonderful rotation actually <clears throat> as much as medical school is it you know a lot of the stuff you learn and whatever but that's I actually took some really good nuggets from that so okay. I really appreciate that how is um your brain is a complex organ and we have a lot of questions that people ask but I want to try to keep it as focused as possible your brain uh, people talk about the brain as uh, we only understand what they say, like ten percent or fifteen percent of the brain. What about the brain makes it such that is there any way we'll ever be able to understand it to the level that we understand the heart or 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 the lungs or an organ like that? What do you think? We don't know, Tommy. <clears throat> We're making a lot of progress, especially in the last ten years, with supercomputers and new ways of imaging that we never conceived of before. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 years ago, nobody conceived of the internet. Mm-hmm. And so we have increasingly powerful tools that help us delve into the brain's workings. That doesn't only limit itself to imaging, but also to molecular aspects and chemical aspects and genetic aspects. And what we're also realizing is that um, we can. there's a lot more we can do to protect our brains. For example, lifestyle um, rules, brain fitness rules, in Mm -hmm. other words, are suddenly, it's suddenly been realized they're far more powerful than we ever thought. You know, a simple thing like engaging in regular exercise can decrease your risk of developing dementia, stroke, heart attack by up to 50%, Yeah, I was reading in your book, or reading an excerpt of your book, or maybe it was online, and you talk about... uh, AD, Alzheimer's disease, being diabetes type 3. Yes. So it's metabolic and a vascular disease. Yes. In fact, the, um, the latest theories about how, how one gets dementias, such as Alzheimer's, is that your small brain blood vessels start to clog up. Mm-hmm. And what clogs them up? Uh, probably a too high sugar diet. Not a too high fat diet, but too high sugar diet. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorite topics is this um, cholesterol myth and that fats are bad for you, you mm-hmm. know, the reverse is true. Our, our brains are about three-quarters fats. Sure. Special kinds of fats. 
And if we mess with that metabolism or intake or drugs that decrease fat absorption, I think we're causing a lot of trouble. And there is evidence that <clears throat> the rise of neuropsychiatric disease in this world, of which you see examples every single day, um, may be attributable to our poor diet and or medication um, that decrease cholesterol, for example. So that flies in the face, obviously, of the, uh, I guess you call it mainstream what we've been taught for I don't know, what, the past 30 years or 20 years at least about lowering aggressively cholesterol. And then, you know, they talk about omega, omega acids are, are good for you, but omegas are good fats, but then the other fats are not. But you're saying in general it's the sugar that's the problem, not the fat. Sugar is the problem, yes. And that's something that is something for, you know, when I was a resident, or student, I mean, I remember you talking about it was, it was either you or Dr. Malik were saying that, you know, if someone has vascular disease in their heart, it would stand to reason that they have vascular disease in their, in their brain as well. Correct. And so uh, that a lot of the things that we're talking about for heart health, you know, brain health is, follows that exactly. That's quite correct. Um, although the different vascular beds react differently. Um, you know, the heart and brain are very closely linked. So mm -hmm. if the heart gives up, it, the brain will give up too. Right. What about, um, you know, the fats that they are talking about now is saturated fats and um, trans fats, they say, are very bad. But they say that unsaturated fat is okay, but saturated fats are, are not good. But I was I saw a uh, gentleman on, it was a, I think he's with a Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic, He's a, he's a cardiologist. He's in charge of some division. But he's saying that saturated fats are not bad for you. No, that's right. You know, we're learning more and more about it. You know, fats have just in general been delegated as, as bad foods. Mm -hmm. Mean, meanwhile, they're critical to our brain health. And, for example, LDL is something that you worldwide cardiologists, especially internists, have said the lower the better. Well, that's not true. There's good LDL and there's bad LDL. The small LDLs are bad for you. The large LDLs are good for you. When you get the blood test, mm -hmm. it measures all of them together. Right. And a lot of people think that a total cholesterol over 275 is abnormal, but anything up to 275 is still fine and it does not need to be treated. So you're in an academic arena. I mean, you're right. a professor. How does this jive with the, the other members of, you know, the different departments, for instance, do they are they coming on board with this, or are they do they think this is still um, experimental, or is this becoming back to be? Or soon, will you know there could be a Time magazine where they're going to say LDL is the molecule of the year, like they did with nitrous oxide, and then how how, how quickly do you think that will swing around to where LDL is no longer the boogeyman it was? It's swinging around all the time. <clears throat> there's there's more and more reports. There's more um, ads. There's um, radio shows. There's TV shows. Coming from everyone, logic uh, cardiologists actually, um, who tell us that um, the cholesterol, tell us about the cholesterol myth, mm -hmm. um, and that statins statins are not really effective in controlling heart disease at all. What about for inflammation? So when I was a yes. student, I hate to keep going back to it, but that's you know, like I said, that's where I got a lot of my knowledge of what I still know about right. stroke. Um, I remember we would have a patient come in, have a stroke, okay, a hemorrhagic stroke, for instance, and then we get the hemorrhage under control, uh, the hemorrhage starts to shrink, and then you test their cholesterol, and their cholesterol is normal, okay? Right. But then we start putting them on a statin for anti-inflammatory effect. Yes. What is, is that, 
That is true. You know, okay. the one thing that statins do is they have an anti-inflammatory effect, which is beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's because you're, you've allowed your arteries to become inflamed by being blocked up with too much sugar, actually, and triglyceride buildup. Triglycerides is actually the end result of having too much sugar. Right. And that leads to an artery that becomes blocked and inflamed. So mm-hmm. in that way, statins are of assistance, but not by lowering cholesterol. There's never been any study that shows that lowering the cholesterol has helped. It's been the anti-inflammatory effect that's helped. Now, the, the uh, saturated fats, most of them are actually good for you. In mm-hmm. fact, the ones in dairy, I think the name is palmitoleic acid. Yes. That is a saturated fat that lowers your cholesterol, interestingly. Mm-hmm. And dairy products are healthy for you, provided you have the full-fat dairy products. Unfortunately, there's been a a huge trend in industry to consume low-fat dairy products or even worse, 0% fat. Mm -hmm. And all that's happened is if you remove the fats, these foods are so unpalatable Mm -hmm. that they have to add a huge amount of sugars back. Right. And so you you start with a product that's that's many times worse yeah so because you're you're getting the low fat label in order to make it make anybody want to eat it you have to load it down with sugar exactly and you know it's the same thing for any type of processed meal i always tell patients you know if it comes in a box it's going to be by definition it's prepared already it's going to be a definition have more salt and more uh sugar in it just to make it palatable yes and uh so that's one of the things that you know again a lot of this I've seen it. I don't know how much of it's con- cons- conspiracy theory or not, but a lot of the anti-fat movement they say is funded by the sugar lobby as a way to, like you just said, because if you got to reduce fat, then you got to increase sugar. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it does uh, correlate, like you said, that uh, a low-fat product is going to be higher in sugar. As far as sugar from anti-inflammatories, you know, we talked about sugar is bad. How does sugar, for just the layman out there, uh, how does sugar, how is that inflammatory or cause an inflammatory process? By, by <coughs> sugar was, um, was part of our diet for many millions of years. Back in the Miocene, you're talking about 30, 40, 50 million years ago, mm-hmm. when our diet was largely fruit. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's what we survived on, and we did that in a very healthy way. And um, sugar is something that our bodies are very much used to. In the, in the form of fruit, but mm-hmm. not refined sugar. Mm-hmm. Now, when, the, when environmental conditions changed in the last 10, 20 million years, our bodies were forced to store more fructose, which is the sugar in fruit, as fat, so we could survive the lean times. Mm-hmm. So we have a special biochemical mechanism that immediately stores any sugar as fat, right. which works very well for us, Provided we don't have too much sugar. Of course, today we have about 300 times more sugar than we normally are allowed. And provided, too, that when that did happen evolutionarily, that you had a, an active lifestyle, which is the opposite yes. of what most Americans, at least, or I guess people in the industrialized world in general have, is an yes. inactive lifestyle. So it's compounding. You increase the sugars. It doesn't help. And then you decrease activity, then you have a double whammy. Correct. We had a couple questions, and I don't want to um, let them be disappointed. One of the questions we had about is short-term memory. Yes, I remember in medical school, I think it was, that I learned that, med- that short-term memory is kind of more akin to attention rather than actual memory. Is that true? 
It's absolutely correct, yes. Okay. You know, by short-term memory, in, in neuropsychological terms, you're really referring to what's called working memory. Mm-hmm. And working memory is another term for the operating system of our brain. Okay. It's also a form of attention. Right. So if I gave you a seven-digit telephone number, you'd have to keep it in your mind long enough to be able to dial it. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is probably the, one of the best examples of how short-term memory or working memory, mm-hmm. as it should be called, works. Mm-hmm. Also, when you speak, before you open your mouth, you would have already formulated what sentences you want to say. Mm-hmm. But you have to keep them in mind long enough to be able to speak them out. That is all working memory in, in action, if you like. So I remember there was a time we had a patient had a stroke. And uh, we said, uh, tell me what your name is. And the patient was, my name is, and they were very non-fluent. Right. And then you said, all right, now sing uh, Happy Birthday for me. Happy birthday to you. And they were able to sing that. Just Is that from a different part of the brain that they were able, is that the, like you're yes, saying? Yes, that's something slightly different. So that that's a very good example of how powerful the music circuitry in our brain is. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of evidence that music... Uh, was um, within our brains at least one million years before language. Mm. So we sang a long time before we ever spoke. So like birds sing and things exactly. like that. Yeah. And so um, um, the music circuitry is very, very expansive in the brain. Mm-hmm. And if you have a language impairment, the the music circuitry can come to the rescue. Okay. And, and enable you to, to formulate the words better, but you're going to sing them. And, and this is the basis of why melodic intonation therapy is good. So we get people to sing rather than to speak, and they do much better. What can people do? There, there's a lot of people like, you know, we were talking beforehand, I do concierge medicine, and right. you, you brought up that, you know, that's kind of what you wrote about in the back of your book is the brain box and all right. the optimizing things. People want to optimize their memory. One of the things that, you know, one of our, people ask, I think it was actually our clinic coordinator, Tracy, is how do you, is there exercises to do to improve your memory, your short-term memory, for instance? Because yeah. some people have problems with it. The, the first thing you have to make sure is that the, the basic organ, the brain, your computer, in other words, is an optimum functioning capacity. And, you know, adhering to the five brain fitness rules takes care of that, which is physical exercise, cognitive exercise, eating brain food, socialization, and sleep hygiene. Can you show us your book? Yes, sure. So this is BrainBeat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a scientific foundation and evolutionary approach to brain health. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I wrote it is because I want people to understand not only how to do things. Mm-hmm. I don't want to just give them a list of to-dos. Mm-hmm. But I want them to understand why it happened like that. Mm-hmm. For example, why is it that when you do physical exercise, you actually grow new brain cells? So talk about that then. So every time you exercise, you're growing new brain cells? Yes, and if you do several hours of exercise over a number of days, you may grow between 3 and 4 million new neurons. And that's been shown in, in mice on a treadmill, for example. So the, the neurons you're born with aren't the neurons you no. So you can actually... Hyperplasia, I guess it would be. Yes, you're growing new brain cells every single day, also making new connections. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to the second, one of the the other brain fitness rules, sleep hygiene. And one of the functions of sleep is to prune your brain. Yes, I've heard that. Yeah, so topiary, if you like, Mm -hmm. uh, which is pruning. 
So you're making way too many connections and synapses every day, most of which you don't need, and that has to be pruned away. Mm-hmm. So it's like building up too much garbage. Mm-hmm. If you don't get rid of your garbage, you're going to slow down the functioning. Okay. So sleep, of course, has very important memory functions. It has dreaming functions, which allows you to be creative, but it also clears out waste in the brain. Is it kind of like you know, when you reset, you're cleaning the cache out of your internet browser. If your browser's yes. running, just delete it. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So what's step three? Step three, brain foods. You know, okay. the, the principal brain foods are, th- are things like uh, fruit diet, vegetable diet, um, seafood diet is critical, is the most important. And then... For nut- the, is that because of the fats? Mostly uh, DHA, uh-huh. omega-3, omega-6. Uh-huh. Would you recommend someone just take a, a supplement daily for for like DHA or, or for... F- no, that's only if you cannot, um, for, for whatever reason, eat proper seafood. But whole okay. foods are always the best package mm-hmm. packages because it's not only those critical fats, but there's also selenium, zinc, mm-hmm copper, iron, and iodine. Those five minerals are absolutely key for optimum brain function. You only get those uh, through seafood. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you recommend people who don't have a, do not have a good optimal diet, do you recommend them take any multivitamins? No, just, just in general, um, <clears throat> medical practice today is, is against taking mm-hmm. Vitamins, unless there's a established laboratory deficiency. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can actually make people worse. How's that? Well, it's been linked to an increased cancer rate, for example. Because of just yeah. too much activity? Well, you're interfering with the microbiome. Uh-huh. In any of the food diet-related studies, if they've just changed one component, they've generally been either negative or have shown a worse outcome. Mm-hmm. You have to change whole diets, and that's why all the studies with the Mediterranean type of diet have actually been successful. Yeah, those are, that's a diet that we advocate for because yes. it's not only it's a is it a good diet from a medical standpoint, but it's actually tasty, Correct. whereas a lot of diets aren't. Yes. So what's step four? We're at step four now, I think. So cognitive uh, fitness, cognitive brain exercise, that, that can take a number of forms. You, you know, you could play computer games, but mm-hmm. as long as it's not overdone. But it includes things like playing chess, playing card games, board games, Uh um, doing writing courses, doing an extra degree, uh, learning a new language. Um, Crossword puzzles. Crossword puzzles, excellent. Sudoku. um, Knitting. All of these are what we call cognitive exercise, and they increase your cognitive reserve so that you have extra brain padding. So if something does affect your brain one day, Uh you may not even notice it. Um, I have a patient that has uh, an MRI that shows, if you were to look at the MRI, a lot mm-hmm. of atrophy, but cognitively, there's, as far as I can tell, you know, very normal, so to right. speak. Does that mean that they had some reserve and now maybe they've bought into that reserve and they're going to have some type of decline later? Or is it is it just an anatomic thing? It that's can a very- be. It can be. You know, we see brain scans that uh, look shrunken, for example. We call mm-hmm. it atrophy. But even more so, we see brain scans with a lot of white matter lesions on them. Yes. And these are actually, um, I, I call them cortical scars. Okay. It means that there's been some some damage to the brain. Okay. And you wouldn't want that to continue for too long because it could suddenly worsen and become a clinical syndrome. Okay. If they take that patient, then they're normal, quote unquote. And they have the, the cortical scarring, right. atrophy. 
you repeat the MRI in six months from an imaging standpoint as well as following them? Would you, or, or, or a year or sooner? Probably not six months, but one or two years. Okay. And what I ask people to do is to follow the brain fitness rules, and I've seen reversals <coughs> in the number of white matter lesions. For reversals? Example. Yes, and also an improvement in their cognitive functioning. And of course, at the same time, you'll see that they've lost weight, their blood pressure's come down, their mm-hmm. diabetes has improved. So there's a very tight link between your body metabolism and your brain function. Well, this patient that I'm speaking of is a uh, pr- patient who, when we were talking about it, we were looking up different reasons, and I was going through all the different possibilities. Lyme disease is another point someone had a question about. But you know, it's, I talked to the radiologist, and he says, look, it's small vessel disease. And uh, I said, well, she doesn't have this, she doesn't have this. She don't. But she admitted to being a, a sugar addict previously. Mm-hmm. And so that may tie in. Correctly. Oh, you know, when, when you say small vessel disease, mm-hmm. that, is, that is a big red flag for me because it's the small vessels that supply the brain cells. Mm-hmm. And if your fuel supply is starting to diminish, your brain function will, will follow suit and also decrease. Mm. So that's the time to intervene. If you don't intervene then, you, it may be too late. So if you intervene, meaning start doing some of the things that are in the yes. book. Okay. What about, what's step five before we, I want to answer, ask one more question after that. Uh, we've covered physical exercise, yep. cognitive exercise, mm-hmm. brain foods, um, sleep hygiene. Five is socialization. Okay. So we, we as primates in origin signed a social contract for, for protection against predators. So we go around as a group for protection. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it in a nutcase. And that works very well. But uh, the problem is we have to get along well with each other. Mm-hmm. And that is in our best interests. However, it takes a lot of brain power to do that. And that one of the theories is, is called uh, Dunbar's number, is that um, our brains increased in size primarily because we had to socialize more and more and more. Okay. And he came up with a magic number of 150. That's kind of the most we can socialize with. And there are lots of studies to support that now to show that people that are, a, for example, recluses, mm-hmm. they have a much higher incidence of cancer, stroke, heart attack, even infections. Interesting. And socialization decreases inflammation, increases oxytocin, for example, which is beneficial, and uh, is protective from a cardiovascular point of view. So the number 150 is the number of what? Is, is the maximum number of people that you can really, oh. that you really know. So all these people that I see on a, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn that have 10,000 contacts, Doesn't not necessarily their brain is much better than mine. In fact, <laughs> uh, in fact the, the people that we deal with mostly are just five. Yes, like that's a, true. The family unit. Well, that's absolutely true. And 15 is the next step, okay. which is um, a sort of close circle of friends. And then... Uh, Above that is about 50, so they go up in, in, in multiples of three. And uh, 150 is kind of the most people that you would have as as possible friends, even um, remote acquaintances. Right. Some people call it a Christmas card list and so forth. Very good. One question we had from a patient was uh, Lyme disease. Yes. What is the effect of, I mean, this is a very broad question, but... Tell me from your experience, what is Lyme disease? What can it do or what does it do to, to the brain? Well, Lyme disease is a strange infection, much like um, syphilis, for example. It, it um, can cause almost any kind of neurological syndrome. So it could be mild cognitive impairment. It could be uh, paralysis. 
It could be blindness, double vision, mm-hmm. just fatigue. Um, and we have to be very careful we, we don't miss it because these are eminently treatable disorders. And chronically, though, once there's you know, acute, you know, we, a lot of the controversy now is there's no good way to treat chronic Lyme disease or some people believe that doesn't exist because the standard laboratory measures we have to capture that don't. So there's a, it's almost become like a fibromyalgia of the brain where it's just like, is it real, is it not real? But for those people who have chronic Lyme disease, what's the prognosis for them? You know, they've, they've not been treated acutely and now they have these, you know, these tertiary symptoms. Well, it may be something similar to what we're seeing in, in a condition called Gulf War illness, where it took about 25 years to work out what was going on. But there was a, <clears throat> a synaptic poison, if you like. Mm-hmm. And that's interfered with the normal brain functioning. Mm-hmm. And not only does it interfere with the brain, but with the joints, with the muscles, with the nerves. Mm-hmm. And so these are people who were given a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. But mm-hmm. there was a lot more going on than that. Mm-hmm. And with the troops, for example, it was actually the antidote against nerve poison that was causing a synaptic problem. And that's Gulf, Gulf War Syndrome. Gulf War Syndrome. Before we go, I don't want to keep you too long. And I do appreciate you coming in all the way from Orlando where you were at an international conference. What was the conference? It was an international uh, neuroscience conference. Quite a big group. And I spoke about the um, neuro neuroarchaeology and the assembly of the executive mind. That's that's, uh, something that I think all of our patients in the concierge medicine world, but in general, just people looking to optimize their health should... Uh, check into because your brain is your brain you know it's, yes. it's one thing to have a bad back but you have a bad brain you're kind of up, up the creek without the proverbial paddle one thing I just want to ask you is from your standpoint of a brain specialist is there any uh, benefit to doing these things that are called detoxes where they supposedly take out the toxins out of your body is that is that something that they say it accumulates in fat in the liver for instance is that something that is anything that you're familiar with or that you have an opinion on even? No, I'm not familiar with those things. I hear about them, but I don't know that there's any good basis for that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not an expert on it. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Hoffman. How can we get in touch with you if we want to learn more about what you're doing? Well, I have the website up. and um, I'm sure that too. I, I can give people an, an email contact if they want, want to ask questions. Uh, go ahead. You want to give them the email? Yes, uh, mhoffman4 at me.com, two Fs, two Ns. Two Fs, two Ns. And uh, Dr. Hoffman, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a pleasure, and I'm glad we were going to have to do this remote, but I'm so glad that you were able to come all the way over here and find our little office in Wesley Chapel and uh, share with us. And thank you again for the uh, excellent teaching that I received uh, on behalf of all of our classmates, too, when I was uh, at My USF. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. And for all of you out there listening uh, to get more of the Dr. Tommy show, subscribe on YouTube. And then Dr. Hoffman's book, I'm going to put a link to it, but I'll put a link to his website. And uh, this is Dr. Hoffman's book. And he's got several books. <coughs> Two at the moment. He's got something coming up in, in 2017, it looks like. Yes. It. Right. All right. Thank you all for joining us. And until next time, bye-bye. To hear more of the Ask Dr. Tommy show, go to AskDrTommy.com or subscribe on iTunes.